0: Uh, Last week we examined the the events surrounding 1 Kings chapters 1 and 2 and how uh, it all led to Solomon ascending to the throne of Israel. Uh, as we saw uh, last week, his path to the throne, uh, though it was promised by God and it was assured that would happen by his father David, it wasn't without much difficulty, <laughs> courtesy of, of one of uh, Solomon's stepbrothers, Adonijah. We saw the conflict that uh, broke out in the kingdom of Israel as Adonijah uh, made a claim to the throne as David is pro- uh, proverbially on his deathbed, and we saw the con- conflict and the confusion. And the chaos that resulted in that moment. But indeed as we we sought to make evidence last week. Solomon's uh, sort of rise as the king of Israel came in the wake of much bloodshed. Uh, We noted that last week but I wanted to note it again this week. Only because I think it's worth noting. Because Solomon's name is actually the opposite of how he ascends to the throne. Solomon, his name means peace. It means uh, one who is a peacemaker, so to speak. It's indicative of the change that's going to happen. Uh, as Solomon takes the throne, his reign is going to be a peaceful rule, a peacemaking rule, very much unlike his dad's. David's was filled with wars, with conquest, with uh, conquering other nations, so to speak. And Solomon's is very much different it's a peaceful reign and that's uh, so it, it comes from his name but also there's a national sort of uh, experience of peace for israel too but as we'll consider in the next couple of weeks that peace comes at a great cost A great compromise, too. I'm getting ahead of myself, but that's okay. Um, I think this is evident in verse 1 of our text this morning. It's sort of hinted at. At the beginning of Solomon's rule, we're given a small hint at the cost that he is seeking to pay, that he's willing to pay in order for Israel to experience peace. Notice it says in verse 1 And Solomon made affinity with Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and took Pharaoh's daughter. He's making a treaty, he's making a peace. Treaty, So to speak with Egypt here in taking one of his daughters to be one of Solomon's wives. It's an interesting point. I'm getting a little bit ahead myself by making that point but keep that in the back of your mind that for as peaceful as Solomon's reign is it comes at great compromise. But all things considered now, as we approach chapter 3, Solomon is firmly established as the king of Israel. That's the end of chapter 2, verse 46. And the kingdom was established in the hand of Solomon. And it was established how? By Solomon coming in and leaving all of his enemies on the tarmac, so to speak. They are all laid to waste. He is firmly rooted and planted as Israel's king. But it's not just That he is established as Israel's king, yes, but it's also that now Israel is established as one of, if not the world powers at this particular moment in history. This is again the the sort of inference of verse 1. Notice again verse 1 of chapter 3 and it says, And Solomon made affinity with Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and took Pharaoh's daughter and brought her into the city of David until he had made an end of building his own house and the house of the Lord and the wall of Jerusalem round about. You see, up until this moment, Egypt and the Pharaohs who ruled Egypt weren't ones who would give their daughters over to other nations. They were ones who were taking daughters from other nations for their wives. They were using that as moments, as very public displays of their dominance, of their might. We are taking you and we are going to override you. And so much so that uh, you are going to give us one of your daughters for my wife. But here we see the opposite opposite happening. The opposite is occurring. Egypt is giving away one of their daughters, which is indicative of their sort of national and, and social and political decline, especially as a world power at this point. But regardless, as this newly minted king named Solomon here is beginning his reign, he begins it by starting, as verse 1 indicates, a lot of building projects. <laughs> Over the, next course, uh, over the next few chapters in fact. More and more details of, the, of Solomon the builder. Solomon the one who is uh, very much involved in lots of construction projects. Is going to be more heavily detailed. But he's beginning here uh, his reign. And we are given an account of his devotion and dedication to God. The one that we know. As the wisest man who ever lived, evidences true wisdom at the start of his rule. Notice verse 3. And Solomon loved the Lord, walking in the statutes of David his father, only he sacrificed and burnt incense in high places. He's walking here in wisdom, he's walking in the ways of his father. As we are going to see, it's a little bit different perhaps than what we think. But he's evidencing true wisdom at the start of his kingship. And here I think we see four lessons regarding what true wisdom looks like. And I would say even too that we are are desperate for these lessons even in our own day. That the wisdom that Solomon displays at the beginning of his rule is wisdom that we need too. So let's go through this quickly this morning as we see these four lessons throughout this chapter. First of all, I think we see in verses 5 through 9, wisdom's prayer. Wisdom's prayer. We are told... That he was worshipping in high places. Places, in fact, where pagan worship used to happen. Notice verse 2. Only the people sacrificed in high places. Because, why were they doing that? Because there was no house built unto the name of the Lord until those days. Now, of course, during this time, there is no temple that has been constructed at this time. We know at the end of David's life, he was possessed with this notion of building God a house. First Chronicles 17 gives us that wonderful story where, uh, where David is possessed with this idea. I need to build you a house where all of the people can come and worship. And God tells him, no, you're not going to do that. In fact, one of your sons is going to do it. But even more gloriously, uh, God gives him the promise, but I'm going to build you a house, a house that's going to last forever. An unending dynasty is going to come through your line. Which, uh, a little wink and a nod, uh, which is to indicate that Christ is going to come through David's house. That's what God was promising him. But the more literal promise that's being uh, sort of carried out here is Solomon is coming to the throne. And he is going to be the one that builds the temple. This hasn't occurred yet at this time. And so there are still high places that have been converted into places of worship for the people of Israel. And such is where Solomon finds himself. He's at Gibeon, as it says in verse 4. Gibeon, which was the sort of great high place before the temple was erected. And here he's there, he's worshipping. He's worshipping God, as it says. He's offering a thousand burnt offerings. (laughs) What's most apparent to me as he is at this high place is is that actually God is honoring this time of worship. He's accepting this time of worship, yes, even though it's at an old pagan high place. He's honoring it only because we know that he appears unto him in verse 5. And Gibeon, the Lord, appeared to Solomon. But we're told, what's most interesting to me is how Solomon worships is so indicative of Solomon the man. He, he's making this offering to God and he's making, a, remember as it says there, a thousand burnt offerings to praise his Lord. <laughs> He's trying to go over and above and beyond sort of this, this display of devotion by evidencing the totality of his dedication to God by making this extravagant offering. And in fact, as we'll see in the chapters to follow, that extravagance is quite emblematic of Solomon's entire rule. That everything he does is extravagant. Everything he does is with much fanfare, with much pomp and circumstance, so to speak. That's important, I think, to remember and to keep in your minds as we go through Solomon's kingship. However, regardless, here in this moment, God honors Solomon's worship by appearing to him in a dream. He sees Solomon's devotion to the words of the Lord to, quote, the statutes of David, his father. And he presents him with one of the most remarkable and, dare I say, coveted sort of scenarios of all time. God appears to him, verse 5, and giving the Lord appears to Solomon in a dream by night. And God said, ask what I shall give thee. And essentially, he gives Solomon a blank check. Ask what you want me to give you and I will give it to you. Whatever, whatever you desire, I will bestow. Those appear to be the words that Solomon is presented with. And it's a very desirable scenario, is it not? <laughs> Indeed, I think we would all jump at the chance for God to give us a similar offer. <laughs> I would love to know what I would respond with. But in fact, that's what kind of reveals how sort of dangerous and hazardous this scenario is too. Yeah, it seems desirable that God would give us such a blank check, give Solomon such a blank offer to say, whatever you want to ask, I will give it to you. But it's also very dangerous because it would reveal the true character of whoever is receiving this offer. Because what he responds with would reveal, would expose what he truly values. How and where you place your value, your character, so to speak, would be revealed and how you would answer that question. So I wonder how you would answer that proposal. If God gave you this offer, what would you ask for? I think of that song. The the song that immediately came to my mind was that that song, A Grown Up Christmas List. (laughs) All the wars would all stop and, and man would have all kinds of peace and stuff like that. I think that's a natural thing perhaps we, we would answer. It's very altruistic of us. But regardless, notice what Solomon asked for. So God appears to him, ask what I shall give thee and I will give it to you. Verse 6, and Solomon said, thou hast showed unto thy servant David, my father, great mercy. According as he walked before thee in truth, And in righteousness and in uprightness of heart with thee. And uh, thou hast kept for him this great kindness that thou hast given him a son to sit on his throne as it is this day. And now, O Lord my God, thou hast made thy servant king instead of David my father. And I am but a little child. I know not how to go out or come in. And thy servant is in the midst of thy great people, which thou hast chosen, a great people that cannot be numbered nor counted for multitude. Give, therefore, thy servant an understanding heart to judge thy people, that I may discern between good and bad. For who is able to judge this, thy so great people? He prays for an understanding heart, wisdom, Discernment as he says there in verse 9. Judgment. I want to be able to judge and rule. And wisely lead your people. With your judgment. With your discernment. With your wisdom. So he prays and he asks God. In a remarkable display of humility. For God's wisdom to fill him. To fill him as he rules God's people. It reveals Quite remarkably to me, in fact, the honest intentions that were in Solomon's heart to rule God's house faithfully. God, uh, or excuse me, Solomon started off well. He was walking according to the statutes of David, his father. He was here uh, uh, walking according to humility, understanding that he could not do this task. This so great amount of, of a weight was set before him and he could not do it in his own ability. He needed God's wisdom. As he says there, give therefore your servant an understanding heart. You see, through this prayer, this prayer of wisdom, he understands that he's not king because of himself. It's not because of his own abilities. He hasn't demonstrated some sort of extra special level of kingly dexterity that allows him to be the best one for the job. In fact, he likens it only to God's promise. Such as what he means in verses six and seven, where he's talking about the great mercy and the fact that you, God, have promised that a son of David would sit on the throne. And that's what's happening today. I'm a son of David and I'm sitting on the throne. What you have promised has come about. And that's why I'm here. And he understands in the following verses that this task of leading these people is so great. It's too great for him. He needs wisdom. His humility, I think, is indicated just by the fact that he mentions and he calls himself a servant. Three times, in fact, in verses 7 through 9, he calls himself thy servant. God, I am your servant and my particular service is leading your people. He understands the, the weightiness of this task. His assignment is no mere small moment of leadership. He is the one who has been now charged with leading God's covenant people. He's king and ruler and the ruler over the very people through whom God has promised all the way back in Genesis 17 that would bless the nations. I'm king over your great people. That's what he's getting at here. He understands this task. All the while, he's barely 20 years old. He says um, in verse 7 that he's but a little child. He's sort of using a hyperbolic expression of the fact that he's a young man. That this task is too great for him. It's beyond his level of experience, beyond his level of being able to handle it. So he asked for the one thing that could sustain him under this massive responsibility. He asks for the wisdom of God. Give me, your servant, an understanding heart. To judge thy people that I may discern between good and bad. Here, through this prayer of wisdom, Solomon is evidencing a true humility before his God. Before Yahweh himself, he's evidencing that he understands this moment. And I would say this, that this prayer ought to represent the prayer that we pray as well. This prayer ought to typify all of the prayers for wisdom that we pray to. Because you see, the wisest prayer that we could ever utter is that which recognizes our absolute dependency on God. That's the wisest prayer we could ever pray to God. God, I can't, but you can. God, this task is too great for me. But God, you are the one who can imbue me and indwell me and bestow upon me a wisdom which would allow me to discern how to navigate this task. This is Solomon's prayer. It ought to be ours as well. Ours, like Solomon's, uh, though we may not be ruling a nation, we're not great sort of world leaders of a world power, so to speak. Ours is still a task that is way beyond our depth. The life of faith is utterly impossible without God. So often though, I'm speaking for myself, I'm confessing to you, (laughs) I like to think that I can do this on my own. Maybe you feel that way. Maybe you you can go through your weeks and not realize your absolute and utter dependency on this great giver, this great God who is the father of all lights as it says in James 1. But so often we we like to resort to living in our own abilities. Living in our our own uh, gifts. Living according to our own grit and strength. Confess that I've done that many, many times. (laughs) Many weeks of my life. Many perhaps months and seasons of my life. I've been living according to my own ability. I can do it. I can get through this. I don't need anybody else's involvement. I don't need anybody else's discernment or advice or counsel. I'm wise enough on my own. That's the life of unfaith. (laughs) You see, this is why it goes against our nature to declare faith in something or even someone else. Because it it, it necessarily involves the admission that we are dependent. As Americans, we don't like that. (laughs) We're independent. We don't need anybody else. We don't need anybody else's involvement. We don't need anybody else's influence. The life of faith, though. Is a life of dependence. And the great thing is, as was sung in that song, we are dependent on someone who is way stronger than us. Way wiser than us. Who is way uh, more capable of, of carrying us through than we are ourselves. We are totally dependent on God's great mercy. As Solomon here confesses, you've shown my father great mercy. The inference of his prayer is, show me now the same. And the wisest thing we can do is to pray for that. Pray for the wisdom to recognize that we are absolutely dependent on him. We don't just need grace. We need the grace to see that we need grace. We don't just need mercy. We need the mercy to see that we are absolutely dependent on his mercy. Because our eyes are so blind. They are so fickle. They are so much going after their own ways. The prayer of wisdom is a prayer of dependence. May we all see that we are dependent on this great father. This great and merciful God. That's wisdom's prayer which is evidenced by Solomon. But notice secondly in verses 10 through 15 wisdom's promise. Because God hears this prayer of Solomon. He requests wisdom and it pleases the Lord. Notice verse 10. And the speech pleased the Lord. That Solomon had asked asked this thing. He is joyful. He is so glad at the fact that Solomon had not asked for some selfish thing. That he hadn't asked for some self-serving, self-interested gift. By the way, we should take notice of every time the scriptures indicate that this thing pleases him. There's some other examples of that in the Gospels. But every time there's something that says this pleases the Lord that ought to raise our attention. We ought to be more alert. And here this prayer of dependence is pleasing to the Lord's ears. And it is precisely because Solomon had not made a self-concerned request that God profusely blesses him. Notice again verse 10. And the speech pleased the Lord and so- that Solomon had asked for this thing, for God's wisdom. And God said unto him, because thou hast asked this thing, and hast not asked for thyself long life, neither hast asked riches for thyself, nor hast asked the life of thine enemies, but hast asked for thyself understanding to discern judgment. Behold, I have done according to thy words. I'm going to do that, essentially says. Lo, I have given thee a wise and an understanding heart. So that there was none like thee before thee. Neither after thee shall any arise like unto thee. I'm going to answer your request. I'm going to make you the wisest man who has ever lived up to this point And who has ever lived from this point. From now on, you will always be known as the one who has the most wisdom. But notice verse 13. And I have also given thee that which thou hast not asked. Both riches and honor. So that there shall not be any among the kings like unto thee all thy days. You're going to be such a great king that everyone's going to see you and know that you are the most magnificent ruler who has ever ruled. Who has ever sat upon a throne. No one's going to be like you. Both in riches and honor and in wisdom. It's so fascinating to me. That because Solomon had now asked for these things. That God gives him those things. (laughs) Because he had not asked to sort of have all of his enemies wiped out to secure his throne. He hadn't asked for riches to sort of secure his place. He hadn't asked for anything self-serving. It was only that he might be wise. And therefore God loves to show off how much of a giver he is. He gives these things to Solomon. As we are going to see in the next few chapters over the next couple of weeks, Solomon's rule is filled with opulence, filled with extravagance, filled with riches and things to the degree that we have, that is hard for us to, to comprehend the type of wealth that he had. But I think what's indicated here is that what God loves the most is when he is seen and worshiped as the giver of all gifts. That's what he loves to be seen as. It's like a father, like a dad on Christmas morning who gets so much joy when his kids are playing with the gifts that he gives them. That's one thing that has struck Natalie and I as as we've had kids. is just uh, I get more joy out of seeing them enjoy something than me getting something. I want to see like, the smile on my little girl or little boy's face as they're enjoying this new thing. And yeah, it may not be for long, and they may go on to something else. But even still, the joy in that moment is still very rich and profound. I love to see that. That's your father. God loves it when you are, are enjoying the gifts that he is giving you and you are enjoying them in such a way that you know that he is God and he loves to be seen as this generous and ungrudging giver. That's James 1.5 again. That he loves to be seen that way. This is there's just this, this awesome sort of intimacy that this father, this God has with us. That he loves to be seen as this giver of all things. And he's pleased in that. When we pray and live in this promise of wisdom. What, what is the, the promise of wisdom? Let me read it to you. It actually comes from Jesus' own mouth. It's a verse you're likely very familiar with. Matthew chapter 6 verse 33. Says this, Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. In a very real way, Solomon, this is indicative of what happens in Solomon's life. He sought first the kingdom of God, and all of these things were added unto him, according to this God who loves to be seen as the giver of all things, who loves to be seen as this very profuse giver. All these things were added unto Solomon. Praying for wisdom. And seeking God first. Is a life of dependence. It's a life of seeing God as the giver. And that's how God blesses us. When we see that all that we have is because of him. All that we have before us is because of this giving God. Solomon is off to a good start. He prays in wisdom. He has the promise of wisdom. But notice thirdly, wisdom's purpose. Wisdom's purpose because God gives him this gift. Verse 15, And Solomon awoke, and behold, it was a dream. And he came to Jerusalem and stood before the ark of the covenant of the Lord and offered up burnt offerings and offered peace offerings and made a feast to all his servants. Then came there two women that were harlots unto the king and stood before him. So we have this scene now, a transition, a great transition, as Solomon is now gifted with this wisdom from on high. And he goes down and he comes back to Jerusalem and now he entertains this audience with two prostitute mothers who are having a very concerning quarrel. It happens that now we are given this scene to sort of confirm uh, Solomon's gift of wisdom. Essentially what you have here from verses 16 down through verse 27 is the account of two women who were living in a brothel. And they both end up getting pregnant at the same time. And they both end up giving birth only three days apart. So very close in time they welcome newborns into the world. And you have woman A and she comes up to Solomon and she accuses woman B of stealing her newborn while she was still sleeping. Because woman B had accidentally smothered her baby in her sleep. <laughs> A very devastating scene. And then woman A alleges that woman B has realized this unfortunate event in the middle of the night. And had replaced her dead baby with woman A's living baby. And of course woman A comes to realize what has happened. And she tries to, when she tries to nurse that baby in her arms the next morning. And realizes this baby is not living at all. She, he is in fact dead. So Solomon now hears both of these women claiming that the only living, remaining baby is theirs. They're claiming rights to this living child. And he proposes a very morbid solution. (laughs) Look at verse 23. The king said, The one saith, this is my son that liveth, and thy son is the dead. And the other saith, nay, but thy son is the dead, and my son is the living. So they're both arguing, they're both bickering, claiming to have rights over this son. And the king said, bring me a sword. And they brought a sword before the king. And the king said, divide the living child in two. And give half to the one and half to the other. A very violent scene. (laughs) A very violent scenario that Solomon here proposes. Let's just compromise. Let's compromise. Let's cut the baby in half. That will make you both happy because you both get half of a baby. And therefore everyone can be happy. (laughs) Of course, Solomon's intent, he knows all along, that this would reveal something in the true mother of the child. And that's his intent all along. He knows that as soon as danger is even hinted at, at coming at this newborn son, that the maternal love that is in this mother would rather this baby be given away than have any harm come upon it. He knows that. And such is what happens, verse 26. Then spake the woman whose the living child was unto the king. For her bowels, her insidest insides, yearned upon her son. And she said, O oh my Lord, give her the living child and in no wise slay it. But the other said, Let it be neither mine nor thine, but divide it. Then the king answered and said, Give her the living child and in no wise slay it. She is the mother thereof. Very curious scene, all of which is evidencing the wisdom with which Solomon has now been gifted by God. It's wisdom sort of put to the test, so to speak. Wisdom sort of out there and examined, and here it is a wisdom that is able to discern and rightly judge between these two mothers. But I think what is most significant about this scene is actually that detail that came at the very beginning of it. Just from the very fact that Solomon entertains an audience with two harlots. Two women of very low estate when it comes to the economy of the kingdom. When it comes to uh, having an audience with the royal ruler of the king of Israel. Suggestive again that Solomon's sincerest atten- intention was to be a king for God's people. And I think though for me it's reminiscent of a better king a king whose name is Jesus who likewise was accused of coming and embracing publicans and sinners. Here Solomon is doing something similar. He's condescending from his throne to solve publicans and sinners problems. <laughs> He's coming to solve the problems of the worst of the worst. Jesus, though, would condescend to settle their eternity, not just their worldly temporary problems. He would come and settle something far greater, which leads us to this point. Wisdom's prayer and wisdom's promise and wisdom's purpose leads us to verse 28, which I think is wisdom's person. Notice what it says. And all of Israel heard of the judgment with which the king had judged. And they feared the king for they saw that the wisdom of God was in him to do judgment. So all of Israel now hears of this amazing story of how Solomon is able to do judgment. He's able to judge rightly and quickly on matters in the kingdom. And word spreads fast. All of Israel and all surrounding them now hear of this great wisdom and insight that is now in this king Solomon. Such that kings and dignitaries from other nations are now flocking to soak up some of his wisdom. Notice... Quickly just in proof of this. Verse 34 of chapter 4. It says there came of all people to hear the wisdom of Solomon. From all kings of the earth which had heard of his wisdom. He was greatly wise. Greatly discerning in this gift that had been given to him from God. Which is true and right to say. But for all of Solomon's wisdom. For all of his ability to to do judgment as it says here. To carry out justice. What we are going to see. And the tragic thing we have to keep in our minds. Is that Israel is still left wanting. That Israel is still aching for one who would possess perfect wisdom and judgment and discernment. Such is the point we have to remember about Solomon's life. Because the beginning here. The beginning of it is not the same as the end of it. In fact it's vastly different. Jump ahead. I want you to see this point. Notice the end of Solomon's life in verse. Or excuse me chapter 11. Look at verse 6. How unlike the young Solomon this older Solomon is. Notice verse 6 of chapter 11. And Solomon did evil. In the sight of the Lord. It went not fully after the Lord. As did David his father. Look at verse 9. And Solomon was angry. Or excuse me. And the Lord was angry with Solomon. Because his heart was turned from the Lord God of Israel. Which had appeared unto him twice. And had commanded him concerning this thing. That he should not go after other gods. But he kept not that which the Lord had commanded. Solomon's wisdom was not able to save him from himself. Solomon's wisdom was not able to save him from eventually leading to the fracturing of the kingdom of Israel. As Solomon here passes away and as chapter 12 begins, we have the great divide of the nation of Israel into fractured kingdoms. Which leads us to say that wisdoms or Solomon's wisdom and his justice, that with which he was given by God, point beyond themselves to one who was to come. Because you see, just like Israel... Who is here caught up in the fact that this one had such great wisdom and insight from on high. We need someone who doesn't just have the wisdom of God. We need someone who is the wisdom of God. We don't just need someone who possesses insight. We need someone who rules in perfect judgment and discernment and wisdom. We need a king who would execute perfect justice. That's what Israel needs. We need one who would come and execute discernment in flesh and blood. We need God's wisdom in bodily form. To make it short, we need Jesus. He is God's wisdom in flesh and blood. Colossians 2.3, it says that Jesus in him is hidden all of the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Or 1 Corinthians 1 verse 30 says that Jesus himself is made unto us. Yes, us today. Wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Jesus is our wisdom. He's the one who truly rules wisely. Therefore, the offer of the gospel that is before us fills the the horrid vacancy left behind in the wake of Solomon's demise. Because in the vacancy, in the void of what wisdom should have offered, comes Jesus, the one who is wisdom. Notice this is what is promised. Listen to these words. Go to Isaiah chapter 11. Isaiah the prophet is here speaking in such bold terms about one who was to come. This quote, root of Jesse. Notice verse 1 of chapter 11. Notice the words that appear. And there shall come forth, the prophet says, a rod out of the stem of Jesse and a branch shall grow out of his roots. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him and the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. And shall make him of quick understanding in the fear of the Lord. And he shall not judge after the sight of his eyes. Neither reprove after the hearing of his ears. But with righteousness shall he judge the poor. And reprove with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall smite the earth with the rod of his mouth. And with the breath of his lips shall he slay the wicked. And righteousness shall be the girdle of his loins. And faithfulness the girdle of his reins. The wolf also shall dwell with the lamb and the leopard shall lie down with the kid and the calf and the young lion and the fatling together and little and the little child shall lead them. And the cow and the bear shall feed. Their young ones shall lie down together and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. And the sucking child shall play on the hole of the asp and the winged child shall put his hands on the cockatrice's den. They shall not hurt Nor destroy in all my holy mountain. For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord. As the waters cover the sea. And in that day there shall be a root of Jesse. Which shall stand for an ensign of the people. To it that shall the Gentiles seek. And his rest shall be glorious. That's Jesus That's the king of all kings. The king in whom true wisdom and understanding and discernment is found. This is the good news that we have. It's the good news that wisdom hasn't just been gifted to us. It's that wisdom has walked where we have walked. That wisdom has come down for us to fill the vacancy left behind. By the the, the foolishness of sin. By the unwisdom of rebellion against the father. This is Jesus Christ. The king of all kings as seen in the absence of Solomon's reign. Where he should have ruled in wisdom. He eventually ruled in a decadent reign that resulted in division. And how unlike this is in Jesus. Who is true wisdom. And who will not divide, but will bring people together. Will bring, yes, not just his people, but all nations. He is the ruler over them. Which leads us to say this, that Jesus is the person of wisdom. He's the true and better Solomon. The true and better son of David. Who not just possesses. But embodies perfect understanding. Perfect judgment. We need this king. This king who was way better than Solomon. Who is way better than any other king. That rules after him. This is again. The king of kings. Because in him. Reigns wisdom. In him is this glorious kingdom going to come about. Where righteousness is how it is founded upon. Because he is a king of wisdom and righteousness. May we pray for this person of wisdom. Pray to see our desperate need of him. Pray to see that the promises that he gives to us are promises that are fulfilled in Jesus. And he alone is our ruler. He is our authority. He is our king. May we pray to be dependent on this true and better and wiser monarch. King Jesus. Let us pray.